I don't know whether you've ever had one of those invitations to uh, a wedding or a larger event and you find yourself being in the situation where you don't really know anybody else who has been invited to the party. And so as much as you can, you do your best to kind of get around the tables or talk to the person next to you. But the reality is that you're the only one there who that you know, or your husband or your wife is the only other one there that you know, and you end up propping up the bar together uh, while everyone else is having a fine old time with each other. As we come to uh, the story of Exodus, this huge Old Testament story, one of the themes in it is of being in a foreign land, of not yet having found that place that you can call home. But let's just remind ourselves of what's gone before. So let me take you back to Genesis uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, where Abram is uh, talking with God and God promises to bless him and make him into a nation, a great nation, that will be a blessing to the whole of the world, to the whole of the earth. There's then a covenant with Abraham uh, and a promise, uh, sorry, not necessarily a promise, but uh, uh, this idea that that the nation is going to be in trouble for at least 400 years in a land that's not their own that they will be enslaved and mistreated, but that they will come out of it with great possessions, which we're going to see a little bit later on during the term. Unfortunately, Abraham, Abra, Abram uh, takes things into his own hands and has a baby with his servant Hagar. And then a little bit later on, Isaac is born to his wife, Sarah, even though she's very old. And then Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. And you remember the story, I hope. Joseph is the dreamer. He's sold by his brothers because they don't like his dreams and he hasn't quite figured out how to handle them yet. They go back to dad and say that he's dead but actually he gets sold off into slavery in Egypt. And so the things that were spoken to Abraham start to be fulfilled. But he becomes commander. Commander of Egypt. He's put in charge of everything and he collects the stock so that they can uh, stockpile in times of plenty and get ready for the famine. And then the family come and help, come and ask for help, and they all end up moving to Egypt. And that's where we get to the start of the story in Exodus. The family multiplies. They grow, they are fruitful, they fill the land, but the first generation dies out and a new pharaoh comes into power. He's afraid of the people of God. And so the people are enslaved and set to work. And in the bit just before Bev read, uh, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, is uh, trying to kind of constrain uh, the people of God. 
And so he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill each boy that's born. But they won't do it. So the order comes that the babies are to be, the baby boys are to be thrown into the Nile. But one mother, one mother decides to do things differently. She places her baby boy in a basket covered in tar. It's interesting that the word that's used here can also be interpreted not as basket, but as ark. The little baby is placed in an ark and set on the water in the hope that someone will discover them. And I think they've got the plan worked out pretty carefully because the next person to come down is... Pharaoh's daughter coming to bathe in the Nile and she sees the baby and her heart cries out. The baby is rescued but what's more, what's more is the mother is brought in to feed and to raise the child. The thing that I want to dig into this morning is that right in this place of grief, where horrible things, terrible things are going on. Right there, they discover God's hand at work. In that place of grief, there is also grace for those that are looking for it. It's sometimes difficult to see at the time. And, you know, it's the worst of Christian advice that we can kind of give is to kind of say to someone, well, you know, it's going to be fine. God will turn this all around. Can't you see where, you know, sometimes when you're you're in the middle of it, actually that's not what you need to hear. What you need to hear is just someone with you. Someone to weep with you. But the recurrent theme in Scripture is that even during the tough times, God is right there, looking out for His people. Grace follows closely behind the grief. So my hope and my prayer is that if, as we look at this story together over the coming weeks, that actually it will give us a context for where we are now. That it will help us to be a church on the way, a church that's learning to follow Jesus. But we're in a land that is not our own. We've become citizens of heaven, yet we're still here on earth continuing to work things through. You see, the story of Exodus is also our story. We are in a foreign land. We've not yet seen the fulfillment of of the promise. We're living in the now and the not yet, that in-between time of the kingdom. But as we look at this wonderful story over the coming weeks, what we'll see is the ideas of promise and redemption and salvation. And so we come to the story that Bev read to us today. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. He has been included as one of his own, as one of Pharaoh's sons. He's living in the land as a king, a Hebrew boy as a king in Egypt. But he does know who he really is. And one day he goes and he sees 
an Egyptian beating one of his own people. And he takes the Egyptian and kills him and buries him in the sand. I mean, it was never going to be a good plan, was it? You see, the problem for Moses is that he has this call on his life. He's already got this call on his life. He just doesn't know it yet. God has already set upon Moses this heart for freedom and for justice for his people. But this was not supposed to be how it was going to be worked out. He takes things just like Abraham did into his own hands and tries to sort out stuff on behalf of God. It's never very fruitful. I remember when I was doing youth work a very long time ago in a church where uh, I, I had been given all of the youth work stuff but was trying to hold down a day job at the same time and was beginning to think that I, I should be doing something in terms of Christian ministry that was full time, whether that was in a church or whether that was being a policeman or a teacher I hadn't quite figured that out yet but I knew that I wanted to be serving God full time and I applied for this job at a Christian charity local Christian charity that I thought was I, I thought it was a phenomenal place to work and I'd got this glimpse that God was calling me to to something and I stepped into the interview and I was so uber confident that this was what God was calling me to do and that this was how things were going to be worked out. And over the series of just one or two really good interview questions, my plan fell apart. (laughs) And I ended up in the interview having one of those strange meltdowns where you go, you start the process kind of going, yes, this is going to be it, to actually I don't really know why I'm here. Which was somewhat embarrassing because I knew the folks that were interviewing me and they were friends. But, um, you know, sometimes what we do is we try and push into the things that God is calling us to and we take things into our own hands and we do it on our timing. But his timing is always so much better. Sometimes we can even use the thing that God is calling us to for ill or even evil rather than good. The very gifts that he's put in us we can lord over others. Anyway, Moses realizes that uh, what he's done is about to be made public. The Pharaoh gets wind of it and Moses runs for the hills. You know, as anyone would at that point, just get away. And he comes to this well and there are women drawing water at the well, but then they get attacked by the shepherds. And Moses steps in again. You're getting a picture of Moses' heart really early on in the book. He steps into those that are being attacked, those that are being overrun, and he makes space for the women to draw water. In fact, more than that, he draws water for them. He draws, he does the work that they were going to do that day. He protects them, he draws the water for the women and for their flocks. 
he rescues them. See, Moses can't help but fulfill his calling. But thankfully this time he doesn't kill anybody. At least the text doesn't say that. In fact, he seems to serve them well. And the women return to their father. Why have you come back so early? Oh, this bloke rescued us. What do you mean this bloke rescued us? Why have you left him there? You know, this is the father's concern, isn't it? You know, hang on a lot. I've got seven daughters. Someone rescued you. Why on earth have you left him out there? Get him in here. We've got to get you married off quick. I mean, the, the text doesn't actually say that, but that's what I've read into it. You read your own thing. I could be entirely wrong. Um, take that as take that as observation rather than you know uh, theological commentary. It, you know, in Moses' grief, he runs to the hills. In that place, he describes himself as a foreigner in a foreign land, but even in that place, he bumps into the grace of God. He meets his wife. They grow a bump together. But he's still a foreigner in a foreign land, bouncing between grief and grace. You know, we can operate in one of two ways. We can either operate in grief or we can operate in grace. Grief is when life is hard, it's tough, things keep on going wrong. I don't like where I am, I can't see God at work, I'm feeling oppressed and overwhelmed. Operating from that place is hard because all we can see around the next corner is more of the same. Life looks bleak. And in that place we don't make great choices. Or we can operate from a place of grace even when life is hard. We can choose to see God's hand at work, to see his provision, to join in with what the flow of the Holy Spirit is doing and to know when it's God's timing. You know, one of the, one of the wrestles, um, sorry, I'm just checking in as to whether I can talk about this. Yes. Um, one of the wrestles that vicars have is that y- you hold all this stuff in your head about what you think could be done. You know, and there's quite a lot. There's a massive amount that, that we could do as a church. But you know, I don't want to push us into that. I don't want to push us into more and more activity so that we can do the things by ourselves that God has asked us to do, but without Him. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for those places, and I hope and I pray that you are too. I'm looking for those places where we can see that God is at work and we join in. Because when we step into that, it's easy and it's fruitful. By By easy, I don't mean that it won't be hard work. Of course it'll be hard work. I mean ease in terms of the sense of something being well oiled. 
And we can step into the things that God wants, wants us to do. His timing. You know, that's the wrestle that I have. You know, so if I look perplexed sometimes, that's probably why. Too much stuff in my head. I'm trying to see with the church family what's next. You see, I want us as a church family to be operating from a place of grace. To operate from a place of grace is not to ignore the things that are difficult. You know, sometimes life is tough. We experience bereavement and loss and things don't go the way that we wanted them to go. And at those points, what we need to do is is to not push ahead regardless and make things happen. That's to operate out of grief. Instead, to stand. To stand in the wonder and the grace and the freedom of who God is and what He's done for us. Knowing that even though it's hard now, that we will see Him. That we will see Him at work. Let me pray. Father God, you know the things that we wrestle with that bring us joy and the things that we wrestle with that are just tough. Lord, help us to operate not out of grief but out of grace that our eyes would be open, that we'd see you at work, even in the hard places, for the glory of your name. Amen.